You can always delete, right? Yeah, we can't add in though. We can delete, but we can't put in magic words. <laughs> so, should we start? Right. Yeah, sure. Hey, uh, so welcome. Uh, we're not in the studio, we're in the hubbub. As you said, Jamie, of NRF, I'm Ian, I'm Editor-in-Chief of Internet Retailing. I'm Jamie Merritt from Salesforce. And increasing the level of sophistication and good looks around the table, we have Gijs. <laughs> Tell us who you are and a bit about where you're from. Hi, so I'm Gijs van Engelen, Chief Digital Officer officially in Hunkemuller in the Netherlands, uh, based in Amsterdam. Now working since 2013 for the brand Hunkemuller and uh, yeah, been part of the big transition that we've done there. Hunkermuller is totally famous in the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, not so much in UK, Southern Europe, and maybe not in the US. So tell everyone a bit about Hunkermuller and you know the hundred years it was going before you joined. More than <laughs> fifty years. No, it's a Dutch brand originally. A lot of people think it's a German brand because it sounds German. Yeah. But it's really a Dutch brand. It's founded in eighteen hundred. I don't know, 1886. Exactly. Oh, really? Well, you did your homework? No, I did Wikipedia, but yes. Okay, really, really well. <laughs> so the main market is really Benelux, uh, so Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg, and Germany. That's really where the core sits. Uh, Scandix is also growing. It's becoming a more important market, and Southern Europe is a smaller market. Yeah. We're, the, we're, we're in Spain, we're in France, but it's it less stores, less turnover. From a digital perspective, we're expanding outside our main markets. So UK is one of them. So we're doing a, a third-party wholesale I'm doing in the UK. We also have a website, but it's still small because we don't have really the investments to, to, to put big branding into the UK. Also, so. everyone finds it impossible to type into Google. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. so that's one of the hard things. How do you get that funny O? Yeah, is it optional? Anyway, it. just bringing the history up to date, one of the things that set Hunkermuller apart was it came from a sort of background of higher-end corsetry and really well-made stuff. Oh, you're going back now, yeah. So exactly. Lexus, it was exactly. the, at the I'll time. Tell you, as um, corsetry has turned into lingerie, and lingerie has become part of luxury, part of sport, part of comfort, how has that market changed? Where is it positioned now? So I think if we go back to the, the corset time age, that's, let's say, 1950s, where it was Hunkermuller Lexus, and that really migrated to become a mainstream lingerie player. And I think in 2009, when the current CEO took over, he really made the switch and he switched it into a brand. So from a, from a high street retailer into a brand itself. And uh, I think this is really when the growth started. And mm. that's when we started the expansion, the stores portfolio grew. And I think we were at that time like 200 stores. We're now close to a thousand stores. Wow. It's huge growth and we're becoming much more a fashion brand. So what we have in Uncomer is we design ourselves. So from the start to finish, we have the full chain within our own company. So we have designers, then we have the buyers, then it goes into production and it ends up in our own stores. So we only sell it ourselves and through third parties on, on wholesale. And in terms of then your customer, lingerie is often used as a case study to test new merchandisers when you ask them to plan a range with everything from you know, 28 AA up to 40 triple G or something. So the combinations, the combinatorial challenge of having all the sizes all of the time in all of the colors and all the stores is like boom. So um, what, what's your secret to that, to focusing the range on your customer yeah. and then making sure you've got the right product for them in the right place? I think this is the big challenge you always have with merchandise. I think this is where <laughs> your, your sell-through and your size bows that, that take place. 
But what we do is officially we really designed and, and we built our brand approach for store, for brick and mortar. Then online came in. And of course, uh, we have all sizes of stores. So 180 square meters, 300 square meters. So not all products fit in the stores. So some stores mm. don't get certain product lines. So that's one. So this is really where we use the internet distribution center to do complete. So every store can be a flagship store. That's one. Then what we do I'm is... I'm sorry, when you say... Because everyone says every store can be a flagship store. But I look at some of them and they're quite small. Yeah. So if I'm maybe a non-standard size, or I've got a specific requirements. I walk in and I point at someone and say, good morning, be a flagship. How do I interact with the smaller store yeah. to get that flagshipness? Okay, so we have clientele apps, so we've got the technology supporting us there. So let's say we work with fits and shapes. So we have a sort of a size modeling system. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the store employee can measure your fit and your shape and your sizes. And we have all those in, in every store. So because they're fixed molds, fixed cups. And then if you see products that you like or which are not in the store or your size is not in there, we have a clientele where you can really see the full experience from the internet. Then the store employee can just order the product directly in the store at the internet DC. And either it gets shipped to the store or it gets shipped mm. to the customer's home. Um, so that really works well for us. So we started doing that to, to the endless aisle kind of structure. Um, I think in the beginning we had the first year like 1, 1.5% of store sales, which was quite good. And yeah. we, we trended now around 4, 4.5%. Wow. And it's really to complete, so it's whatever we cannot put in the store or wherever the merchandise takes longer to replenish and to allocate. We always have the distribution centers from e-commerce, which have almost always all the stock. Mm. Next to that, what we do is we also have e-com specials, and that's really how we test the new sizes and new cups. So we put some dedicated lines only in e-commerce, available for the stores which they can test. So we sell them online, they can test it through the order store applications. And that really gives us data and learnings that we can then embed into, into our new buying cycles where we say, okay, now this was a success, this was not a success. We test it and then we implement it into the next year's buy into our full uh, brick organization. Interesting. And I'm surprised that the clientele is, is that high. Uh, when you look at your customers, uh, do you see that those who use the clientele then end up spending more? So is there a group of customers who are you know, really liking the omni-channel yeah. experience of store plus web plus concierge? Yeah, it's almost always the third product that they buy and the basket on average for an order in store. So you, you buy three products, let's say, then two products are in store, one product is on the internet or on the order in store. It's on average the basket is 1.2. So it's also more difficult to do that because if you want to make that positive from a profit perspective, just shipping one item yeah. is often difficult and that makes it challenging for us. So what we did, we implemented technology again on top of that to make sure that we can consolidate those orders so we don't get to one item orders anymore, which we need to ship per piece. So we consolidate them into 10 parcels into one box and then we ship it to a store and then and that's how we can make it also a profitable setup. But as you go into uh, UK, US, that's obviously going to stretch and test the model. Yeah, without stores, that's tough. And yeah. it's more difficult to grow. But for us, really what we saw happening, really when we started doing Switzerland for the first time, and I think this is a good example. So Hunkermüller was not in Switzerland. In 2016, we were not there at all. We had no stores, no present, nothing. So we made a deal with Zalando. So we opened Zalando in Switzerland. 
And they started opening the market until we got to one, two million turnover. And we said, okay, great. Now let's open a website. So we opened the website, let that grow for a year. And then we opened our stores. And I think now we have over 10 stores in Switzerland, which are, which are good and profitable. And, and the branding is done and the system rolls and runs. Fantastic. So for UK, it could be a similar setup. So in UK, I started also with, with third parties like ASOS, uh, the, the big players there. Mm -hmm. Then we did the website implementation, so the website's live. Uh, but we do see the difficulty in the UK is, the, is the, the delivery times. Because you're shipping from Germany, there's the post-Brexit delay or that yes. the customer wants it by yesterday? Well, they're both. <laughs> <laughs> I think both. And that makes That's it really difficult. So, for you, yes. Yeah, so in order to be able to grow UK really, because we see there's appetite. So we do approximately 10 million in total in the UK from a turnover perspective, uh, together with the third parties, that is. But we need to first put a distribution into the UK, yeah. otherwise it will not work. It's too expensive for us to ship it up and down. It's too expensive to handle return handling, so we need yeah. to keep the products in the country. Uh, so we need, we're, we're this year we will be building a hub there uh, that will be helpful. I think we've nailed the branding side by coming on the podcast, so I think you're fine on that front. So it's our pleasure. <laughs> That's uh, it. <laughs> no, but also in the UK and the US and whatever, how the, the customer tastes, how different are they? In Switzerland, we, it, it was more like the German setup yeah. that you can see happening there, uh, the sizes, uh, the product, what they like. I'm not sure if, if UK has a much different uh, taste mm. or product portfolio. I think it's, it, it's wide. Um, there is a lot of focus on the uh, a bit more sexy product that we that we sell in the UK. So you see that the share is a bit higher there. Um, you said when I asked you a few minutes ago about the brand, you mentioned you're becoming more fashionable. What does that look like to someone who's not inside the brand? What, so what does we more really follow mean? the high street trends to the brand. So you can really see the from the fashion shows. That's really where it's where it's being picked up. And then our design team takes that on board. They do the designs of the products. And from there, they, we start the cycle. And then the mm. year after, it's in, it's in our stores. Yeah. So look, we've been talking about the business generally. And we skipped over the fact that you said, no, 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 chief digital officer, da, da, da. So uh, what does a chief digital officer do in a thousand store business? What's your role and how does that fit in? What's in my remit to that extent is we have the Chief Digital is responsible in our company for full e-commerce. Uh, e-commerce distribution, so that is the warehousing, the last mile. With that, I also have all third parties, all wholesale concessions marketplace globally. The customer services organizations that are supporting that. Uh, the platforms, the relationship with the Salesforce, with the software vendors, the commercial platforms that is. Uh, the apps that we are sitting next to that. And then also the, the, the technology development and next to that, we also have our, we call it click to brick. That's, that's perhaps a Dutch yeah. approach, but we like it's it. really the, 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 <laughs> click click, to the click to the brick. And that's what we have, our omni-channel suite. And I think yeah. that's also where I'm responsible for and driving the demand and the traffic to the stores via the internet and making sure that the clientele apps are working and that we're able, that the store staff is able to do upsell on, on the leads that we generate. And then we, we do the analytics and we measure it. So we can actually also prove to the stores on, on what profit we deliver to them and why they should embrace every lead that we generate getting into a store. Because a click and collect in Hunkermuller has a 40% upsell. Once the product lands in the store and the customer comes to pick it up, the store staff is able to upsell that product by 40% wow. of the original order value. So for them, just receiving an internet parcel and giving it away is not the assignment. They need to look at the product, get the customer to fit it on, so we lower our return ratios. Yeah. And at the moment, at that time, they can also upsell. 
similar is we are really pushy on return to store instead of return to warehouse because we will not have the cost in the supply chain. We can replenish the store by doing the online returns mm. and the customer will be able to swap the product for the right fit or another color. So you don't lose the sale and approximately yeah. 50% of all the returns there are being resold again. Right. I love the fact that you get them to try it on, make sure that it's not going to come back, as you say, just on return. But when you have busy times, and particularly to my guess, some of your smaller stores, you know, busy uh, calendar events, I don't know, Christmas, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Is, is that practical? Can you really it, do it? No, it's not. Then, then it's often too busy and they do give the parcel away. Yeah. Um, but, but on average, they, uh, let's say in normal life, they, they do handle the order and do the upsell. Yeah. So because we were interested in the changing role of digital, it strikes me, when I listen to what you say, you do everything in the business except for the product and marketing. It's, it's more or less you. Well, marketing is partly in there, so I'm responsible for all lower funnel paid media. Right. And I'm not doing the branding. Right. So. But um, if, if we weren't talking digital now, you could be called retail director or chief operating officer because a lot of the things you do are highly operational, efficiencies. Also, yeah. So I wouldn't have thought that they were digital first, they're more business first with a digital dimension. So can you maybe help people understand if they're looking and thinking, when I grow up, I want to be like Heist, I want to have all of these areas. What's the balance? What's the digital element of these I think the reason versus is just being operationally brilliant? Hunkermuller is a classic retailer. So you have to realize when I came into the company, it was only brick and mortar. Yeah. So you're a new kid in town, trying to start an online organization. And you can imagine that being a classic setup, it's really difficult. Yeah. So the only way to, to build momentum within the company is to prove yourself and to do a lot of things yourself. So this is really where it started. That I, so Why would I do logistics? Yeah. Why would I be managing warehousing and 3PLs? Because our retail operation is running logistics, but they're not running e-commerce logistics. Yeah. It's a different kind of breed or a different subject. Yeah. So we had to do that ourselves. So technology-wise, you know, we, have, we had an IT landscape running SAP and OMS and all the ERP systems, but a platform like Salesforce, or at that time Magento, that was not their cup of tea. Like so separate. we had to do all yeah. the disciplines ourselves. And also next to that, we have a P&L that's closed. So I have my own P&L within the company and I need to make it private equity owned as profitable as possible. Mm. So being able to control all those elements drives yeah. profit. And to what extent then did the, let's say, the analog business go, I love what he's doing, let's just bring them back together. So when e-com is you know, 5% yeah, yeah. of the business, it can be separate. But when you're running at a much higher percentage, you really need to integrate and have, yeah, om- exactly. I hate the word, but omni-channel yeah, uh, but That's the challenge operations. we had in the beginning. So in, when I started, we were 3.6% of uh, sales online, so there was nothing. And nowadays we're like close to 40%. Mm. And in 2016, when Carlisle purchased us, we really made the change by taking Salesforce on board and we did the omnichannel implementations. And I think this is really when the cross-fertilization start taking place. And the big thing we had to do, it was convince retail of the demand, the traffic and the profit we can drive for them. So by training them through training videos, by giving them examples, how much profit per store we can add if they embrace let's say the leads that we generate mm. uh, through all the omnichannel vehicles we're using, they started embedding and seeing the advantages. And then, then it became one. Yeah. And that's really, and then the clientele app, so the tablet in store is really their window to the digital world. Excellent. 
What a case study. We've accidentally done a case study. <laughs> so, Heis, we've touched on international growth, but when you head back to the office after your stint at NRF, you're sitting on the plane and you're thinking, I can't wait to get started with amazing project or initiative X. What is that? Out of all the things you're doing, what's exciting you most? It's always there, so let's say, you have to do, run your daily business. <laughs> and that's a problem. But I think the big focus point for us really is we need to become smarter. We've got a big loyalty program in Hunkermuller, so we have, let's say, 75% share of loyal members who are purchasing with us. So wow. 75%, it's a really, really high base. I think we are now at the time that we need to take that on to the next level. So you have the earn and burn programs, which every loyalty program has. And I think it's now really time that we, with the cookie issues that everybody has, let's say, we need to think another way of servicing our customers and building the relationship not on an earn and burn phase, but more on the interaction that you have with each other, the engagement, the inspiration that you can give, and, and getting the people on board there. You can see, especially due to Corona, that a lot of customers had a changed mindset because they moved, migrated from offline to online. Yeah. They became bargain hunters. So that is a really big group that came on board, which you kind of lose again after Corona because we're not discounting every day. Yeah. So you really need to start embracing those people different. Even those people who are coming for discounts, you need to put them sort of in a bucket and have a different relationship with them than the loyal customers that you need to be having for the coming three, four, five years there. Mm. Okay. So that's going to be a big focus point for us. Uh, and that is the customer service proposition. That's the online proposition. That is the My Hunkermuller proposition that we have there. How do we connect the technology from the internet into the tablets, but also into the customer's app itself and make sure that we go into the next level of the, um, of the 360. I think my to-do list feels a bit smaller, pathetic now. Um, let's just round off. It's been a busy NRF. Loads and loads of people showing everything from robots to AI to VR to Web3 to, you know, shelving. Anything that you're thinking, oh, that's interesting, hadn't thought of that before, or things that have matured that are now worth, uh, worth looking at? What I always like is the innovation booth. That's yeah. that part of yeah, it. Like for me, too. it's the most interesting <laughs> because I just stand there talking to the guys and, and generating ideas. Yeah. You have the founders there as well, so you really get that feeling of what they're about and what they're trying to do. Yeah. Whereas some of the bigger booths are more well, sausage The machines. first year I was here, there was a, an Israeli guy uh, standing there. And after that, we worked for five years together. So really? we really took it on board from there. Yeah. yeah. So for me, that is really interesting. I think now for us, RFID is really the next level where we're going into. Of course, you can imagine the amount of stock that we have to buy. And I think really now it's time to have RFID just not just as a counter in your stock room that you can easily count, but I think it's now time to bring this to the omni-channel level, yeah. which means that from a e-com distribution, as in a box of products goes towards the customer, but before it goes to the customer, it gets scanned again, do we have the right products? Tick, 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 are the right products in there? That's a different approach from doing countings in stores on stock rooms, but this will help us, for example, managing mispicks. Mm. Uh, managing refunds that we have to give and to customers. And is that going to tie into sustainability as well? Yes, because in the end, your quality goes up. It's less cancellations. It's less returning products into our e-com DCs. So I think really connecting the dots, not just from an RFID perspective in a store and as accounting, I think we now need to take it to the full circle in omnichannel. And there are many, many more advantages than, than you originally would see from RFID. So that means there's much more profit in there. Mm. Great. So that's really the next uh, level that we'll get into this year. 
I love that. So it I might be next year, that ask me again next year how far we got, but we will be working on that. Well, you've got two mighty projects. And also, I know you've got a plane to catch. So thank you so much for uh, allowing us to grab you, literally, as you're running to the airport. Guys, lovely chatting. Thank you very much.